Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. I, I don't really have a uh, PowerPoint presentation for today's... I, I put one together, but it only had one chart, and that was a picture. But since he showed up, I don't need to show the picture. <laughs> this is Arlo. Arlo was born in January, so he is our newest grandson. We have a granddaughter on the way that will be here in October. So, and he's about to go to sleep, <laughs> which would be a good thing. Uh, I made the comment to several people that I've kind of forgotten how to talk to uh, real people, so we'll see how this goes. I did have um, a dream twice in the last two weeks where I got up to preach and had no idea what I was going to preach about. I was going up there and I just kind of flumming th uh, thumbing through the Bible trying to figure out some passage to preach on. But today we are going to continue our study of the book of Philippians. He's asleep. <laughs> Maybe I should give him back to his mother. <laughs> That's Hannah. It is interesting because if you get to chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, which we will get to today, chapter 3 begins with the word finally. It's like he's about to finish the, the, the letter, but then you realize he's only halfway through it. This is like some preachers, you know, who you've heard who have said, you know, and in conclusion, and they keep going on forever. Why that is interesting is because in chapter 2, it's like he's wrapping up the letter. You know, we had a long discussion about the example of Christ, have this mind in you that was also in Christ. We had that wonderful passage, and then we did whatever we did on last week's lesson, and I should have made it to the end of chapter 2, because the end of chapter 2 is what you would expect to see at the end of his letter. So we're going to go through the end of chapter 2 pretty quick and then get into chapter 3. So picking up in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So Timothy and Paul have been working together. And in fact, if you remember at the very beginning of the book, it says this is from Paul and Timothy. So Timothy is the young man that has been accompanying Paul on his missionary journeys, and he's sending Timothy back to the church at Philippi to see how things are going. So, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Now remember, Paul is in prison. He is in prison in Rome, and he's not sure what his fate is going to be. It is quite possible he can be executed at any moment. It is quite possible he could be released at any moment. And he was kind of waiting so that Timothy would be able to send word back, this is what happened to Paul. So he has this discussion about Timothy and Timothy's 
how Timothy has benefited Paul in his work. He says, I have no one like him that I can trust to the same degree that I can trust Timothy. And he has this little sentence in there about all these other people are looking out after their own self-interest. We've actually seen this earlier in the book of Philippians where you have this admonition, don't look out for your own self-interest. Look out for the needs of others. Now, it does say in there, don't look out just for your own interest. You do need to take care of yourself, but don't let your self-interest drive everything that you do. And he says, Timothy is not that way. Timothy is not like these others who only look after their own self-interest. So, I will send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He's going to mention this several times in the book. There is no real indication that he ever made it back to the church at Philippi. It is possible that he had made it back, but there's, no indi- there's not any indication. We know from history that Paul is going to be released... He is going to continue to do his work. Then he is going to be imprisoned again, and he's going to be executed. So all of that takes place after the book of Acts, when Acts ends. So we don't really know, but probably, I'm going to assume, he never really made it back. But he is expressing his desire to be back with them. I have thought it necessary to you to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he's sending Timothy, and he's also going to return Epaphroditus to the church at Philippi. Now, What we gather from this is that Epaphroditus was from the church and he had been sent by the church to minister to Paul in Paul's imprisonment. And Paul has all kinds of great words to say about what Epaphroditus had done. But in addition to that, Epaphroditus had gotten ill. In fact, it says that he had been close to death. And Paul knew that the church at Philippi was concerned about what the state of Epaphroditus was. So he says, I'm going to send him back to you, even though he's been of great benefit to me. Once again, he is from Philippi to minister to Paul in his imprisonment. So he's been doing good stuff for Paul, but Paul is willing to send him back because he wants the church at Philippi to be well, comforted that Epaphroditus is not dead, and so that Paul, so that Paul will know that Epaphroditus is taken care of, that they are loving him. In fact, he encourages the church to honor such men as him, 
as Epaphroditus because he was willing to die to minister to Paul in Paul's imprisonment. Okay, that's the end of last week's lesson. (sighs) Now we can do today's lesson. Chapter 3, finally my brothers, and as I said, there's a little bit of humor in my mind when he says finally, and he's only halfway through the letter. Uh, I remember going to a Bible study one time, and we had five minutes left in the Bible study. And the guy said, we don't really have time to discuss this, but there's just one more thing I want to share with you. And 30 minutes later, he was done. (laughs) Just saying, it does happen. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He is telling them, first off, to rejoice. Now, this is interesting. Remember, have I said this a few times? Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison. They are out of prison. And Paul, the one that is in prison, is telling them to rejoice. Why? What what does Paul have to rejoice about? What does Paul have to encourage them to rejoice when Paul himself is in prison? Well, we've talked about this in chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, where he says, even though I am in prison, I am doing the work of the Lord. And we had this discussion about the fact that we, in our minds, begin to think, okay, if I'm in this situation, I can do something for God. You know, if all the parameters are right, if everybody around me is right, if everybody is doing what I, then I can serve the Lord. And if we're outside of that, we begin to think, nah, I can't do it because the situation's just not right. Paul didn't think that way. Paul thought, wherever God has put me, that's where I'm supposed to be. And we talked about this because I really like this. The idea that Paul is being chained to a Roman guard. Now, that's a horrible thing for a guy to be chained to Paul. (laughs) All day long. Well, four-hour shifts. And then he gets a new guy. And guess what? Paul's having the time of his life. The guy can't get away. I mean, here you are trying to share the gospel with someone, and they're kind of looking around and shuffling and sneaking off. This guy can't get away. So Paul is convinced that where he is, wherever he is, he can be doing the work of God. And so he is encouraging the church at Philippi, not to be distressed because he, Paul, is in prison. I mean, Paul's their buddy. Paul was the guy that started the church, and you could expect that they're worrying about him. Poor Paul. They should be worrying about the poor Roman soldier that's chained to him. But what if they kill him? Well, we talked about that previously in the book. You know, if I live, that's great. I can keep doing what God wants me to do. If I die, that's even better. 
because I'm through with all these beatings and lashes and all this stuff that he's been the victim of. He says, it doesn't really matter to me. If I live, I die, it's all to the glory of God. So with that in mind, Paul tells the church at Philippi, don't worry about me. Don't be sad because I'm in prison. Don't be sad because I am suffering for sharing the gospel. That's okay. Rather, rejoice. And we're going to have more discussion as we get into chapter 4 about this whole idea of rejoicing. To rejoice, to find joy in the situation in which God has placed you. And I have to tell you, I have trouble with that. I have a lot of trouble with that. Back to the doing ministry if everything is right. My mindset is, I'm going to rejoice if everything is right. Nothing is right in Paul's life from an external standpoint, but everything is right based on the will of God and what God would have him to do. And he says, I'm going to write this to you, and I've already written to you, and I'm going to say it again. Rejoice, because it's good for you to hear it over and over again, that we are to rejoice. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what is he talking about? Look out for the dogs. Well, I was at my daughter's house last night. Um, her husband just graduated from UNT yesterday. He's, he's a little old to be graduating, but he did do six years in the Army as a medic, so we'll cut him some slack. So he graduated yesterday, and we had a party, okay? Now, at my daughter's house, you have to look out for the dogs, why? There's four of them, and they'll kill you. Not on purpose. They're the nicest dogs in the world. But you have to watch out because they'll just run over you. Okay? One of them is a puppy that's this big. Okay? And just has more. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about dogs as in creatures. He's talking about false teachers. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the the, the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is the mutilate the flesh? Well, we talked about this in the entire book of Galatians. But let's read the next verse. For we, who, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Remember, back to the book of Galatians. There were a group of people known as the Judaizers. Paul would go to an area and he'd preach the gospel. He would start a church. He would spend a year there. Okay, it varied, but he'd spend years there. And then Paul would leave to go to his next city. And behind him would come this group known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jewish Christians, sort of, maybe. 
what they would teach was that, yeah, Paul is telling you some good things, but in order to be a good Christian, you must also be a good Jew. So to be a Christian, to be a true Christian, you also have to follow the Jewish law, particularly for the guys when it comes to circumcision. And that's why he refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. So what is happening is Paul is sharing the gospel and they're coming along and tacking on the Jewish law. Now, if you're talking to a Jewish audience, if Paul were talking to a Jewish audience, that may not be that big a deal. But if you're talking to a Gentile audience, a Greek audience, the idea of circumcision is just nuts. You know, for an adult male to convert and say, I've got to be circumcised, you're nuts. And as we saw in the book of Galatians, Paul gets really ticked off because these people are coming back behind him and removing the grace of the gospel and say, okay, now you've got to work to do it. To really do it, you have to work. To really be a true Christian, you have to perform, you have to meet, you have to fulfill the law. And Paul says, watch out for these people. And he uses some pretty strong language. They are dogs. Now, what is a dog? Well, four-legged creature. But to a Jewish person, the dogs are, well, everybody else. And for Paul to refer to the Jewish people who are trying to teach this as dogs, he's saying some pretty bad stuff about them. He refers to them as evildoers, and he refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. And in fact, if you remember in the book of Galatians, he just comes out and says, you know, if you're going to do circumcision, you might as well just cut the whole thing off. Don't even think about that one. Rather, rather, we are, we who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And now he's going to launch into a discussion about what it means to have confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If the criteria is external works, I'm at the top of the list. And that's what he's going to tell us. Here is his resume of why, if he was going to have confidence in the flesh, he should be at the top of the list. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, item number one, 
of the people of Israel, item number two, of the tribe of Benjamin, number three, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So if he were applying for a job in a Jewish religious group, here would be his resume. This is why you should give me the job. I was circumcised on the eighth day. The book of Leviticus says that young boys are to be circumcised on the eighth day. What does it mean? It means that he wasn't a later convert. He didn't come to Judaism later in his life. He fulfilled the first obligation of the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day as he was supposed to. I am an Israelite. No problem. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Who was Benjamin? Hmm? The last son. Do you remember Rachel had two children? They were Joseph and Benjamin. You remember Joseph is off in Egypt and the brothers come to get grain and all the brothers come except Benjamin because his father doesn't want to risk losing Benjamin because he's already lost Joseph. And Joseph works out this deal. I'm not going to give you any more grain until Benjamin comes. Benjamin was a precious child. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. So for him to say, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, great stuff. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that means I am a Jew and my parents were Jews. Okay, I'm not a, a new guy to this. You go back and look at my ancestors, they're all Jews. As to the law of Pharisee, who are the Pharisees? We talk about them all the time. And we usually talk about them when we talk about the life of Christ because Christ is always coming into conflict with, him, with them. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other groups that he runs up against. The Pharisees were kind of, I always call them kind of a holiness movement. Remember that um, the nation of Israel was carried into captivity? We actually talked about this recently uh, in the sermon series where we talked through Nehemiah. They were in captivity and they were allowed to return and they rebuilt the wall and they rebuilt the temple, sort of. That is what is known as the second temple. And the Pharisees around this time started realizing that, you know what? We've got a mix of people here. We have people that were living in the land we have people who have been living in Babylon and have come back, and you know what? Some people just aren't paying much attention to the law. We, on the other hand, need to pay attention to the law. So we're going to study the law. We're going to find out exactly what it is God wants us to do. God wants us to keep the Sabbath holy. What does that mean? So we'll come up with a list of rules in order to prove that we are keeping the Sabbath. So there's these things we're not going to do to demonstrate to the world that we are holy. 
Josephus tells us that there were probably about 6,000 Pharisees in existence when the temple was finally destroyed after the life of Christ. So these Pharisees are held in high regard. The people like them, which I think is strange because they can't measure up to the Pharisees. They can't, you know, obtain that level. I've referred to them before as professional good guys. They just, that's their job, is to be holy. But the people liked them because they at least demonstrated a desire to follow God's law. Paul says, that was me. I was a Pharisee. 6,000 out of all of the Israelites, I was one of those. I was one of those that kept every minutia of the law. If you could be saved by doing that, ah, that's me. As to zeal, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, if you're a Jew and you want to prove how zealous you are, you can demonstrate that by attacking this upstart group of, well, the church. And that's what Paul did. In the book of Acts, we see that he held the garments while uh, Stephen was stoned. And then he began to receive instructions and permission from the governing officials to go to other communities and drag the Christians back for trial. I mean, you're a Jew, you convert to Christianity, you have rebelled against the teachings of your ancestors. Let's bring you in. And as we know, he was on his way to do that when, well, Christ got a hold of him. More about that in just a moment, though. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, you and I, with our understanding of the gospel, would probably look at this and say, I'll agree with all the others. You know, you persecuted the church, we know that. You were, in fact, a Pharisee, we know that. We assume you were circumcised. We assume that you're a Hebrew of Hebrew. We assume all of that. But to call himself blameless, does that mean he, well, he certainly didn't understand the teachings of Christ when he says, you know, if you do these things in your heart, it's like you've, ju you've, you've already committed them. But you know what? I think Paul really thought he was blameless with regard to the law. He had written his list of rules. He had list, written his list of rules to keep that list of rules. And you know what? I think Paul had kept those. Do you remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And he says, follow the commandments. And the young ruler says, I've done that. And you know what? He probably had at an external level. And then Jesus turned to him and said, well, then sell everything you have. Give some of it to the poor and come with me. And he wouldn't do that because all of a sudden it had become a heart issue, not just an issue of external actions. So I'm going to say Paul actually believed 
that we, with regard to the written law at an external level, he was blameless. So, here are the Judaizers trying to convince the churches that they need to be good Jews in addition to being good Christians. Because they have their confidence in this list of fleshly things, these actions. Their confidence is in what they have done. And Paul looks at those people, metaphorically, he's writing a letter, he looks at these people and he says, you know what, if you want to get a competition going on that level, I can beat all of you. Anything you can do, I can do better. And that's what he's telling them. But, but, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here is the list. Me, Paul, Jew of Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. Here is all of this stuff. And it is all worthless. I count it all as rubbish. I think the King James says dung. Or as we would say around our house, poop. <laughs> Here's the question for all of us. I grew up in a church I grew up in the church from the time I was the size of the baby I just had. I used to be able to see the scar on my chin from running into the little table in the nursery at church. I grew up in the church. I went to all the programs. I went to VBS. I went to church camp every year, forever. I was best camper one year. I sang in the choir. I did all of this stuff. And the question that Paul raises is in what do I place my confidence? Is it because I have done or is it because Christ has done something? And Paul looks at his life and he says, all of that stuff is insignificant to the knowledge of knowing Christ. You, the audience that he's writing to, who put your confidence in the flesh, it's worthless. It is not to be compared to knowing Christ. For whatever gain I had, I counted as lost 
for Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. <sighs> surpassing worth. Surpassing what? Well, I think Paul would argue surpassing everything. But certainly surpassing everything that's on that list that he just gave. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. What has Paul lost? Well, that's easy. He's in prison right now. He has lost his freedom. We'll start right there. He has lost his standing in the Jewish community as an up-and-coming great Pharisee. He has lost his comfort in life. Elsewhere, he gives this list. You know, I've been beaten this time, many times, whipped this many times, stoned this many times. He's given that up. He's given up his reputation. He has given up all of these things. And guess what? He doesn't care. How many of us would sit there and go, man, I had to give up a lot to become a Christian. Woe is me. No. To Paul, it's not worth worrying about. It wasn't like I gave up something great to get something kind of great. To Paul, I gave up that which was rubbish in order to get that which is insurpassable. And that's what he's saying. So the question is, if we, like the people being addressed here, are in danger of having our confidence in the flesh, having our confidence in what we have done as opposed to what Christ has done, are we willing, ready to admit that all of that stuff that we put confidence in is just rubbish? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. When I was taking notes, I wrote that verse 9 is the book of Romans in one verse, or at least the first half of Romans. Let's read through it very, very slowly. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Okay? What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be right with God. Whatever the standard is, you have fulfilled that standard. God says, stand up straight. You stand up straight. You're right with God. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not, and you do that, you're right with God. 
God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we... And Martin Luther looked at that and said, you know what? I'm a monk. I haven't loved the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength. I know I haven't. Now, maybe if you're an extrovert and don't think too much, you might convince yourself you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm an introvert. I don't... And so... Martin Luther looks at that and he looks at the first chapter of the book of Romans and he sees that there is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And he says, how do you get that righteousness? How do I obtain that righteousness? Well, it's easy, right? According to the teachings of the church that he was involved in. I do what God tells me to do by faith, and at the end of the day, maybe I'm righteous. But he says, that's hopeless. That produces nothing in me but despair. So Martin Luther goes to confession, and he confesses for four hours a day, every day. And the monk that's hearing his confessions is sick of it. Come back when you've really sinned. But Martin Luther knows that he doesn't love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. If it is a function of my righteousness, I'm toast. not having a righteousness of my own. It is not my righteousness that is going to save me because I can never do enough to be right with God on my own. I mean, let's say by some miracle, and this is just a miracle, that from this moment on until I die, and it'd have to be in the next 20 seconds or I'm toast. But let's say that from this moment on until I die, I don't sin anymore. I still have this mountain boatload of sin behind me. I'm not intrinsically righteous. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If I am going to be righteous, it can't be my righteousness. It has to be a righteousness that is alien to me, and that is the righteousness of Christ given to me. By faith, I know that Christ, when he died to pay the penalty for my sin, paid that penalty, and I receive his righteousness. The word that is used is imputed. I receive his righteousness. It is his righteousness placed inside of me. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see my 
worthless righteousness, he sees the righteousness of Christ in me. There is a righteousness of works that is based on what I have accomplished. And there is a righteousness by faith which is based upon what Jesus has accomplished for us. Go read the first six chapters of the book of Romans. That's what that is all about. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul wants. Now, back to the first verse of the chapter. He tells them to rejoice. And then he tells them what he wants. To share in the sufferings of Christ. To be like him in his death. So that he can participate in his resurrection. Now, we could stop right there and think, you know, Paul's pretty hot stuff. He goes from being a Jew, of Hebrew of the Hebrews, and having fulfilled this list, to being the A number one Christian. He's got it all down. It's easy for Paul to say, yeah, you can do this. What chance do I have? Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not that I have already obtained this. Now, this is interesting. You remember, well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just tells them, be perfect. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? What is the standard? Perfection. Yet Paul sits here and says, it's not like I've obtained this. Remember our often repeated discussion. We talk about justification, being declared right with God. We have been saved. We have received his righteousness. But then we talk about the process of sanctification, where we work out what God has placed in us already. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we become what God has declared us to be through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And guess what? You're going to keep working on that until the day you die. So Paul can say, I have a righteousness that is by faith. But he can also admit and confess, but it's not like I'm already there. Because he acknowledges the fact that in this life, we are to continue to grow and mature. We are to continue to press on. Remember our lesson from a couple of weeks ago. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's a dangerous verse because it gets us 
gives us this idea that somehow I have to work at being saved. But it doesn't say work so that you will be saved. It says work out your salvation. Work out what God has placed in you. Oh, that's what Paul is talking about in this verse. The church at Philippi is like the church everywhere. It's made up of people who are mature, and it's made up of people who are not mature. It's made up of people who are growing in the faith, and it's made up of people who are not growing in the faith. And in fact, if you believe Jesus, and you ought to, there's also some people in there who aren't even believers. That's the church, as we see it right now. And the encouragement that Paul is giving to the church at Philippi and to all of us is to keep on. Keep on growing toward maturity. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I've used the illustration in here before. I was a math major. And when I was in high school, I thought I was pretty good at math. And then I learned a lot more math. But when I learned a lot more math, I learned that there's a lot more math that I didn't know. Paul is sitting there telling them, you know, you may think you're hot stuff, but you know what? Don't have any confidence in that. Just keep on. Keep on growing wherever God has planted you. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Why is he doing this? Is he doing this so that Christ will make him his own? No. Because Christ has made me his own. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to press on to work it out in my everyday life. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're going to continue on that verse next week but let's talk about it just a little bit. Forgetting what lies behind. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I would think the same thing, okay? I sit here at this point in time, and I look in the past, and I look at all the bad stuff that's happened. And you go to a counselor or a psychologist, and he tells you, you know, you need to put that stuff away. You need to deal with it. You need to forget that which is behind. And there's probably some truth in that, okay? My mind, as I said, I'm an introvert. I sit there and I rummage through this pile of rubbish all day long, okay? But I think Paul is saying... You know, yeah, there's bad things back there. I've gotten beaten, I've gotten stoned, all that. But there's good things back there. There's magnificent. But you know what? That's not important. I'm not going to sit here on my pile of good or bad and be content that now my pile is big enough. 
forgetting that which is behind. I'm going to look that way, and I'm going to press on. And the image that he's giving us, and in the following verses, is you're running a race. You know what one of the worst things you can do when you're running a race is to stop and look behind you to see who's catching you. You're doomed. Forgetting that which is behind. Not worrying about what's behind. Not having confidence in what's behind. He is looking forward to the goal. Now, we're going to stop there. But remember one thing. He is not looking forward to being saved. He has been saved. The goal of the race is not the righteousness of Christ. Because you have the righteousness of Christ, you can run this race. If you do not have the righteousness of Christ, you're in the wrong event. Because you will run in circles until you die and you will never, through your own righteousness, obtain that which God has provided for you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you for what he has done for us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help each of us to press on to the prize. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.